Welcome to Hacked in the Dark, a podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. I'm Mark. And I'm Justin. And we'll be your host for today's episode on indulgence and cutting loose. Today we sit down with our guest, Austin, to talk about Beam Saber. Welcome, Austin. Hi, thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. We'd like to hear a little bit about your origin story. What got you into design? I have been making rules for games basically as long as I can remember those sort of like games that you play as a kid where you pretend to be this or that. Even when I was a small child, I was still coming up with rules for them, much to the dismay of my friends. (laughs) And I never really stopped. It just sort of got more formalized as I got older. (laughs) I see. You put them through the rungs a little bit then. Would you say you cut your teeth on that then, really honing things? Or was it till later that you got into more serious design? I would say that I got into more serious design around middle school when I finally actually got my own copies of Dungeons and Dragons. And so I, like so many others, started there and tried uh, homebrewing stuff and testing it out and seeing what worked and what didn't. That's where it started to get more serious and where I actually started writing stuff down. Austin, we're going to talk about your game Beam Saber shortly, but I'm curious when you were introduced to Blaze in the Dark, the game it's based on. I believe the Kickstarter was in 2015. I missed the Kickstarter. I remember that much, and I was disappointed. But in a sense, I guess you could say that I was introduced to it with Lady Blackbird, since you can see the like clear design lineage from Lady Blackbird to Blades in the Dark. Yeah, definitely. Would you say that Lady Blackbird influenced your decision as well to be a designer? I don't think it did. It- I'm the primary GM for You Don't Meet in an Inn, which is a podcast about playing obscure tabletop role-playing games. So we've played a whole bunch of different games over our six years running, and Lady Blackbird was one of them that we played. So I suppose in that sense it has influenced my design principles, but I think that's more of just um, getting to experience more games broadens your horizons and I think makes you a better designer. I would definitely agree with that. So Austin, you've been involved in the indie TTRPG community for a while. What role do you feel that the community in general plays in your game design and just in like your enjoyment of the hobby? Yeah, I certainly owe a lot to the various communities that I've been a part of. Beam Saber started essentially in the Friends at the Table Discord server where I started discussing the ideas that I had for the game. And when the game got to a point where I needed to branch out from it and start its own Discord, a number of the people there followed those who were interested in the game. It's been a really good thing that's pushed me to continue with the game. And then, of course, I've been extremely lucky in having a lot of playtesters volunteer for the game. Part of that obviously comes from the fact that Beam Saber's a mech-focused game, and I started in a Discord community that was for a podcast that has also a strong mech focus on it. That kind of takes us into our next question, which was to tell us about the game, but it seems like you've already started, so that's cool. Is the pitch then that you're a mech pilot? Not necessarily. Beam Saber is a game about pilots in powerful machines in a war that encompasses every facet of life. 
they're just trying to do their part, then get out mentally and physically intact, and maybe they can bring people with them. So you don't have to pilot a mech. A lot of people choose to pilot other vehicles, in fact, and that was something that was really core to my design process was I wanted to make sure that no one felt like they had to be in a giant bipedal humanoid machine. So a lot of the language that I use is purposefully chosen to, I guess, keep things a bit vague. The word mech or mecha appears very little in the rulebook. Most of the time I use vehicle instead. That's the mechanical term I use for them mm -hmm. so that people don't feel boxed in by how much they do or don't know about the mecha genre. Austin, before this interview, we elicited some questions from our audience and from other folks in the community. And I, I have a few here that are relevant to this. One of them, which is not necessarily directed at us, but I, I thought it was a good one, was can you in fact be a city that punches? <laughs> well, part of the way that I've written Beam Saber is to make it so that the scale is variable. Mm -hmm. My focus as a designer was to make the machines not super huge. The biggest that you can pilot by rules as written, so to speak, is about 60 feet tall. That said, the mechanics, I believe, do scale. The size restriction was mostly about the sort of things I want to see, quote unquote, on camera, which is the idea of having these combatants be able to hide behind like houses or office blocks and warehouses and burst forth through those buildings. And so if you have something the size of a city, obviously you're not able to do those maneuvers, but in the rules as written, there's nothing stopping you from having a vehicle that is indeed city sized or bigger if you're so inclined. <laughs> nice. So we can be a city that punches. Oh, that's good. Yeah. You just, of course, want to make sure that during the session zero, everyone's expectations are aligned in what the game is going to be and what the vehicles are going to look like. Yeah, that's so important in Blades in the Dark games to get clear about, you know, what everyone is thinking for their character and for the group and what that means. Like, if you're a house, then cool. But that also means you're not hiding. <laughs> not too easily, anyway, maybe in a forest. Mm -hmm. Austin, you, you recently released a series of playbooks, I believe, called The Growing Conflict. You want to tell us more about that as well? Yeah. While I was working on Beam Saber's rules, oftentimes I'd come up with abilities or XP triggers or playbook concepts that I was interested in pursuing, but I couldn't finish or they were kind of too weird to be in the main rules. So I set them all aside, put them on the back burner, and then developed them bit by bit as I had ideas that came up for them or other abilities that I had that didn't suit the main rules but would have gone on the back burner. And so slowly over time, it coalesced into a planned supplement, which is the Growing Conflict, and I released it recently. And it includes six new pilot playbooks, two new squad playbooks, rules for forming and managing your own faction. In Beam Saber, a faction is not what it is in Blades in the Dark. I sort of hemmed and hawed over that terminology for a while because I know that what a faction is in Blades and in other 
Forged in the Dark games is much smaller than what they are in Beam Saber, but it was the term that made the most sense. So in Beam Saber, you have squads, which are equivalent to factions in Blades in the Dark. And then you have Beam Saber factions, which are collections of squads, a single multi-planet spanning nation state that encompasses multiple squads under its umbrella. So originally, there wasn't rules for forming or managing one for the, on the player's side. There was rules for creating them as the GM or in the like world-building sense, but not any way of doing that in character. So now those have been added in with the growing conflict, because there was people who were always interested in doing that, but it was a bit much for what the main rules were going to be. Yeah, so it seems like there's uh, some extra fun to be had there, but you wouldn't want to waste it. So it'd be good to have that supplement to kind of guide you towards getting those additional faction, grander factions, grander scale stuff added to your game. Yeah, it's certainly not going to be for everyone. The faction rules definitely add some complications to the rules. And I know that a lot of people come to Beam Saber just for the uh, character interactions and the mech action and aren't super interested in the political stuff. But there are players who are invested in that. And even if the players aren't super invested in it, they may decide that they do want to try and change the world by creating their own faction and are willing to take that leap. Do you have a favorite playbook or crewbook from that supplement that you'd like to share or that you just like to wax on? That is tough. A lot of the playbooks in The Growing Conflict are really weird and interesting. But I think of the six, I think my favorite is probably The Transformed, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a playbook that doesn't have a vehicle and instead transforms into essentially a kaiju, a a giant monster (laughs) that can act on the same scale as vehicles. And so it's a lot about trying to figure out the balance between your humanity and the violence that your other is capable of. Ooh, I love that. That's very Attack on Titan. Yeah, that's uh, Aaron Yeager's one of the inspirations, along with like the Giver and um, Ultraman and Devilman. Oh, wow. I loved all those things as a kid. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) super hyped for that playbook. Is there a particular focus to the new playbooks that is this all this is like you said all of the angles that you couldn't find a way i guess to fit into the the core product i I suppose yeah all the playbooks in the growing conflict are weird ones there's the artificial which is a person who is built for a purpose there's the captain who commands a crew of people in a way that is different from the main rule books officer there's the hero who represents an idea bigger than themselves. There's the rookie who is pointedly weaker than all the other playbooks because they're so green. Like they don't get special items, they have fewer starting actions. I already mentioned the transformed. There's the proxy who's a digital ghost. Oh, super cool. I really like that kind of narrative approach to playbooks. I think in Blades, that's kind of relegated to the quote unquote special playbook. So, you know, the ghost and the vampire and, and whatnot. And I like I like in 
spreading those out to cover a large number of different thematic concepts. I try to use that in Mothlight, my, my own hack as well. Yeah, I'd say this is part of what is making Beam Saber special is the variance in like, do you have just a big Jeep or do you have like a giant alien form that you transform into? There's a lot of ground being covered here. It's interesting to highlight those elements and show how you can be something really different in Beam Saber from a Blades in the Dark game and most Forge in the Dark games as well. Yeah, a lot of people have come up with very interesting ideas for vehicles. I've GM'd for everything from uh, basically an oversized Fiat 500 to an all grayscale Ronald McDonald, <laughs> uh, a hard light tank, just all kinds of interesting things that people are willing to get into when you don't force them into the, the bipedal machine box. Austin, this really excites me, the variety and different character types you can have, but it makes me wonder, we're about to talk about Beam Samer's indulgence mechanic, Cutting Loose, which involves people hanging out with their crewmates. Would you like to talk about Cutting Loose and, and kind of give us an idea for what it looks like for a Fiat to cut loose with a Giver, say? <laughs> well, it's, it's not the vehicles that cut loose together most of the time. It's, generally speaking, the pilots that do so. But there are definitely instances where the vehicles can come into play in cutting loose, just depending on the framing. But the way it works is that whoever is spending their downtime action on cutting loose, they designate one of the other player characters as the pilot they want to spend time with, and then they have a scene together describing what the two of them get up to. And it's supposed to be a scene where they do something to de-stress. That might be that they tear a chunk off of each other uh, by within a screening match over what happened in the last mission. Could be something more chill, like maybe they just silently garden together. Or maybe they have a really like heartfelt conversation over drinks just whatever makes sense for the characters to get to know each other and understand each other a bit better this is very emblematic of the genre in between the fight scenes the like torrid crazy action stuff we get moments that well the good mecha anyway good mecha anime give us moments where we get to know the person behind the controls so to speak and not just the pilots but also the other surrounding characters the secondary characters so to speak maybe the general who's you know over the top maybe that's their cutting loose is getting yelled at by the general for example but this is a really neat concept to play with because you can kind of go in very different directions than you might think of for a blades game considering how indulgence works and there we know indulgence is generally something negative but it can be something positive but it tends to be suggested that it could go wrong for you really just as a matter of course. I think cutting loose differs in some ways. Uh, how does your game handle that topic, be like overdoing it? Yeah, that still exists, and there's still uh, much the same options as there is in Blades, you know, going AWOL for a bit, or uh, getting an additional entanglement, or losing trust. And, of course, the player who overindulges gets to choose which of those happens. The one addition to that to better suit the cutting loose format that Beam Saber adds is the impropriety option, which is basically that your pilot 
over the course of the cutting loose scene makes an ass of themselves. So you reset your connection clock with the other pilot to zero. I haven't really talked about the connection clock yet, but it's a crucial part of cutting loose. In Beam Saber, there's a whole loop, which uh, I call the cut loose connection assist loop. So you have your cut loose scene, which I just described. And instead of doing what you do in Blades, where you roll your lowest attribute to see how much stress you heal, in Beam Saber, you roll dice equal to your connection with the pilot that you are cutting loose with. And the connection is essentially a four-step clock. So everyone starts with one step with each other. So the first time you cut loose with them, you'll be rolling that one die to see how much stress you get. And then after you remove your stress or have your uh, overindulgence, you increase your connection with that pilot by one. So that the next time you cut loose with them, you'll be rolling two dice. Accompanying that is you have beliefs with each of the other pilots, and you have a number of beliefs equal to the number of connection clock steps you have. So these beliefs, if you struggle because of them during a mission, or during a session rather, then you can use them to get XP. And these are the sort of gut feelings that pilots have about each other because they often have to rely on those quick predictions to survive. So having a zero connection with someone is harmful because then you are rolling two dice and taking the lower one if you want to cut loose with them. But it's even worse than that because of how assisting works in Beam Saber. Instead of spending one stress and then providing either an additional die, improved position, or increased effect, like it works in Blades, in Beam Saber, you spend stress equal to the amount of connections you have with the pilot that you're assisting, and you also get that many benefits as well. That many unique benefits. So if you have three connection with a pilot and you assist them, it'll cost you three stress, but then you can give them an improved position, increased effect, and an additional die. And the idea there is that the more emotionally invested you are in a person, the more stressful it is to assist them when they really need your help. And of course, once you have those really high uh, assist cost, then you're going to need to cut loose again, and so that completes the loop. I see. So that's building towards uh, towards a peak. I think that's all very cool to the point where, honestly, I've cribbed parts of it for my own games. But I think it's important to point out for people who aren't familiar with the core game that that connection stuff between the different characters, the mechanics behind that just don't exist in the base game. And it's kind of novel to Beam Saber. And I wonder what your design process is behind that. One of my favorite games is Apocalypse World. And something I really love from that is the history that you have with the other player characters in the game. And so I wanted something like that in Beam Saber. And I also really like the beliefs that exist in Dungeon World between characters. But I wasn't a huge fan entirely of how it worked mechanically in Dungeon World. But I did like, as I said, the beliefs themselves. So... I sort of combined those two ideas together about getting to better understand your fellow pilots and having beliefs about them. And then I also added in a homebrew idea that I don't recall where I read it, but it was a homebrew for 
apocalypse world where the idea was that once you filled your clock or I mean, it's basically a clock. Once you filled your history with one of the other players, then you got to ask them a question that they had to answer truthfully. And so I imported that into Beam Saber as well. So when your connection clock fills, you ask the other pilot a question about one of your beliefs about them that they have to answer truthfully. And then it resets to one. So you get a better understanding of who they are and write a new belief about that. And so these beliefs, when you develop the system around that, I suppose you were really trying to play that up so that players had to engage with that more. Is that the idea behind that? Yeah. Originally, the beliefs and connection thing was going to be handled by an entirely original downtime activity that I hadn't said on the name yet. It was either going to be called Delve or it was going to be called Profile. And the idea was that you basically got nosy into the other person's past and business and so forth. And then that could heal some stress depending upon how the role goes, either for you or for them or for both of you, or it could cause stress and it would improve your connection. But it really felt too optional and it was something that I wanted players to engage with. So making it into cut loose where you have to engage with it to remove stress uh, was a really important decision that happened relatively early on in Beam Saber's development. There are a lot of ways to do the indulgence mechanic. I know I've seen a bunch in my viewing of various hacks of Blades. You mentioned to us before recording that you're working on a new game. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. And if you have any details on the indulgence mechanic in that game, if there is one, could you talk about that as well? Yeah, so I'm working on a game called The Pack, which came out of a tweet by Jeff Stormer, Party of One Pod on Twitter, where he was talking with someone, I don't recall who, and he said a game where the only stat was what you had on you, what your gear was. So The Pack is a Forge in the Dark game where the only thing you're rolling, there are no actions, there's just your load. And so the amount of items that you bring to bear on a challenge is the amount of dice that you roll, whether that's for an action roll or a resist roll. And so the indulgence mechanic in the pack works sort of similarly. I wanted the pack to be as slim a game as possible. I really wanted to make it like extremely tight and small. And as it currently stands, it's only about 34 pages, which I'm frankly is bigger than I want it to be. <laughs> even in spite of its pretty small size mm -hmm. but part of that and making the indulgence mechanic slimmer is that when you rest in the pack instead of having like extremely specific downtime activities that you choose from you just describe a, a series of scenes that you want your character to have with other characters in the party and anytime you have a scene, you can choose to designate it as a rest action. Mm. And then if the rest action is like cutting loose and relaxing with another player's chosen, you can designate it as a rest action and then you heal zero dice of the game's stress equivalent called will. And if you have any items that help with that roll, then they can add plus one die as normal. So again, it's like, Sure, you can decide that all of your gear is like combative stuff 
if you want in this game but then you're not going to have any items that will help you heal your stress or repair your gear. Very much prepared in this game. This is about bringing the right things for the, the right tools for the mission and knowing what you're up against. Yeah, I mean, it's still very early days. The game may change some as it gets more playtesting, but it's extremely yeah, reliant upon what you bring and then when and how you choose what to leave behind and what to pick up. So we also had a lot of questions that came in through our Twitter. There's a couple that I thought I might pick out to sprinkle in here. One, for example, was about in Beam Saber. If you could explain the thought process behind changing an explicit friend to allies. I have an old friend, that sort of thing. Well, in Beam Saber, the idea of friends is a bit complicated. Mm -hmm. I mean, not to say that it isn't complicated in Blades, but oftentimes your friends can be people on the other side of the battle lines and you still have to face off against them. Maybe they're on your side, but you're still working against them for whatever reason or you're working with them. It's hard to say. So I chose allies because it's sort of emotionally neutral term. You might have an ally who you don't particularly like but is someone you can work with. Yeah, this inserts trust issues, in other words, naturally, just by leaving it open. Yeah, and the way that the allies mechanic works in Beam Saber is that once per session, if I recall correctly, you can just say that you have an ally that you can call upon, and you describe the last time that you saw them, and then you roll dice with an action appropriate to what that scene was to see what kind of a mood they have towards you when you call upon them. You know, if you get a success, then they're happy to help you. If you get a failure, then they're not going to be happy to help you. But, you know, there might be other complications that arise as well. Would it be fair to say you can use this allied move at any time? <laughs> well, in the sense that yes, but only once per session. Yeah, not quite a rival move. <laughs> that's too bad. I guess that says a lot about the dynamic in the game. One of the things that I always worry about is NPCs overshadowing the players. And so I didn't want to have a character just constantly call upon their ally to replace them, essentially, when they encountered an obstacle that their character wasn't well suited for. And just saying that, oh, well, I have this friend, and the last time I saw them, we were fighting, so I'm going to roll my, my struggle. And then, because I got a success, then they're happy to help me on this social skill that otherwise I wouldn't have any points in. Which is fine to do, like, once in a while, but shouldn't happen for every single obstacle. Austin, I've noticed in your, in your design of Beam Saber that you've added a lot of elements that kind of add depth to the downtime phase. How intentional is this? And do you enjoy playing in downtime yourself? Here's a secret. I have only been a player in a Forge in the Dark game once, which was on the aforementioned Party of One podcast, where Jeff and I used Beam Saber's GMless alternate rules to do a two-player game of Beam Saber when we did one mission and we did one downtime phase. 
And that's the only time I've ever actually played Beam Saber, not as the GM or any Forged in the Dark game for that matter. <laughs> I do like downtime for the stories that come out of it, but I didn't intentionally deepen downtime to further those. Cut Loose was just something that I really liked the idea of. And then the other new downtime mechanics, like fixing your machine, enhancing it, those are mostly just necessary follow-throughs on the complication of adding vehicles into the game. And the reason that Beam Saber has three downtime activities per player instead of Blade in the Dark two downtime activities per player is simply because now players have to maintain their vehicles as well as their pilots. And prior to having the third downtime activity, when there was only two, I found that a lot of times players weren't engaging in things like training or long-term projects or schmoozing because their downtime activities that they get for free and the ones that they get by paying resources were just getting gobbled up by maintenance on their pilots and their vehicles. Mm. Right, there's just not enough time. It's kind of a place where I think we want our scoundrels to be in but less so with the pilots. The fiction for that, I think, is lends itself more to, yeah, there's conflicts coming, but not so much that you're just totally out of downtime activities every time and you have more you know, to do. It seems like the commander or whatever is giving them enough time to at least deal with that. Yeah, and to that end, the healing rules are actually softened a bit in Beam Saber. The healing's a bit easier. The bottom row clears out when you take the first downtime activity to recover. Yes, that is. Yeah, that's correct. Whenever you, whether you're fixing your vehicle or your pilot is recovering, all level one damage is removed. And then you roll the dice to see how many segments you get on your clock for uh, mending or healing. So it just makes it so that the somewhat inconsequential dents and bruises disappear between missions. But the things that would if this was a show stick around between episodes like a broken arm those stick around in some form or another unless you really press to get rid of them that seems to be a popular change i've noticed in a number of hacks to make healing a little bit easier over the base game one thing i wanted to ask you about is we had strosh of scum and villainy and band of blades on last week and we talked about breaking the game about doing deep hacks of blades and how to break down the game into its components the indulgence mechanic touches on something really important to Blades, the, the stress mechanic in the game. And one thing we talked about was how, while you can separate a lot of these things, touching some of those, those core mechanics can have a lot of chain reactions that maybe you didn't intend. Did you run into any of that when you were developing the cut-loose mechanic at all? I think the, the one thing that I have seen sort of crop up with changes that were made to indulgence in beam saber is that because of the way that cut loose is framed as two pilots spending time together a number of times players have combined their cut loose with another downtime activity so that they can have a scene to basically they end up narrativizing the other downtime activities that would otherwise just be like a quick roll of the dice so for instance you get two pilots who are cutting loose together 
while they are fixing their vehicles together. And so that both speeds up the downtime phase in spite of it being theoretically 50% longer than Blades, while also getting a really good scene of what these pilots look like between missions and when they spend time with each other. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap there, I think, with the fiction of cutting loose and what that might look like in the context of this kind of game. What's interesting to me, too, is that, like what you said, the two pilots fixing stuff in the garage and maybe they're just blasting music. Does that seem like a reasonable application of cutting loose? Yeah, it's really just like whatever the players think would be things that would de-stress the pilot who is the one spending the downtime activity for the cut loose. So that can be a kind of a side effect that GMs could use to their advantage. If they wanted to speed through downtime a little bit, that, that would be one way that players could assist in that by rolling their downtime activities together fictionally. Yeah, there was one playtest group where their ace was basically always taking recovery actions during downtime because he had the meet is cheap, save the metal ability, which lets the pilot take harm in place of their vehicle taking damage. Ow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so basically all of his scenes was him in the med bay or the hospital in like a full body cast. <laughs> and so a lot of his cut loose scenes happened when one of the other characters would come visit him in the hospital. And he, you know roll to heal while they were rolling to cut loose. That sounds like pretty iconic type stuff. I could see the full body cast and them just being like, ha ha ha, ow, 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 ow. <laughs> exactly. One of the things I noticed in my reading of Cut Loose was you explicitly say that it only costs one downtime action and that cutting loose is often one-sided. What was the design decision behind that? And how have you seen that played out in the game? The design decision behind that was that uh, relationships are asymmetric, like real world or in game, which is not to say that <laughs> I'm, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as friends or like or true romantic partners or anything of that sort. I just mean that like people hold different beliefs about each other. They're not mere relationship is not a mirror. And so that's part of the reason that the cut loose is one-sided. I mean, as has already been said, you can combine downtime activities narratively. So you could certainly say that, oh, this cut loose action is both these pilots cutting loose with each other, if you're so inclined and having both players spend their downtime activity. But it was important to have it be one-sided mechanically to keep better track of the connection clock and the beliefs that come out of those cut loose scenes. So do you think, was there ever a time, I guess, that cutting loose benefited the other participant? Yes and no in two different ways. <laughs> so back when it was Dell slash profile, it was possible for both participants to heal stress off of the downtime activity, but it wasn't nearly as much stress. And then... Now there is, uh, I believe it's an empath move called carousing, where the empath, if they are cutting loose, they can let the other person heal some stress. Actually, there, there's two different abilities that allow both parties in uh, cutting loose to heal stress. 
One is actually, I think it might be functioning vice and not carousing. I can't recall offhand, but the other one is the bureaucrats work hard, play hard, which is where both parties involved in the cut loose roll to heal stress, even though only one of them, whoever has the ability in question, spends the downtime activity. But if either of them overindulge, both of them suffer the consequences. Mm, okay. Right. So this is the one. I mean, ideally, they would use it when they're both really stressed out, but that's a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So you designed around this aspect of the system so that there's certain abilities that offer that advantage that you might otherwise think would be maybe automatic but actually it's for the game it's it benefits the game to have these be separated but it makes you also feel special when these abilities kick in and you get to cheat or so to speak yeah my uh favorite way of writing abilities for um games is to make a big long list of all the various resources that players have access to, even things that don't normally seem like resources like mm-hmm. XP triggers or harm, and say, what are some weird ways that they could be spent here? So work hard, play hard kind of comes out of that as like, what's a weird way that cut loose could be spent? Well, it's letting both parties heal stress but then making a a danger because i always like to throw in a little spice wherever i can austin as we get further into the interview i want to make sure we don't lose track of some of these other questions that were submitted and so i'd like to maybe ask you a few rapid fire questions which which you some of which maybe you've had aimed at you before um so for example for our first question which is the gundam that you find to be the best one my absolute favorite Gundam mobile suit. To be clear, I haven't seen all the Gundam series. I'm watching along with the Great Gundam Project, a wonderful podcast that is watching all of Gundam in production order. Mm -hmm. And I would highly recommend it. Currently, we're up to wing, but so far, my favorite Gundam is the V2 Gundam from Victory Gundam, which is also happens to be thus far my favorite full Gundam series. I prefer the uh, 08th MS Team OVA, but as a full like 50-some-odd episode series goes, I prefer Victory is my favorite. Excellent. Thank you very much. Following up on that question, do you have a favorite Zoid? I have never seen Zoids. Not a single episode. I think I have seen like three, maybe, scenes on YouTube that people have linked in the Beam Saber Discord from one time <laughs> or another. I remember one, there was like a rhino Zoid that was also a tank. That was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, I think that's as good an answer I'm going to be able to give, unfortunately. Mark, can you help us out? Do you have a favorite Zoid? Yeah, I think there was a dinosaur theme going on there, and I particularly like T-Rexes. So if there's a T-Rex Zoid, and I'm thinking of the correct series, then that one. <laughs> Thank you for, for helping us out. And for our last question, and I want you to keep in mind that this particular question is from at Leviathan Files on Twitter. So I believe he might have something in mind when he asks this. What's the best way to encourage thinking outside the box when it comes to vehicle design? Well, there tends to be two types of people who come to Beam Saber to play it. And that's those who are familiar with mecha media and those who aren't. Mm -hmm. And part of encouraging people to make stuff that isn't a typical mech 
is part of the reason that I called them vehicles instead of mechs in the mechanics. And people who come from a mecha media background, they tend to be the ones who decide that they want to make something humanoid or quadrupedal or, you know, resembling a Gundam type thing. And those who don't have a lot of experience with mecha media, they tend to be the ones who go real wild. And the simplest way to encourage that is when they say, oh, could I be piloting a giant robotic unicorn with wings? And you just say, yeah, that's great. Tell me more. And because of the way that Beam Saber's rules are set up, it works. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of variety. Like I said, someone played a Fiat 500 as their vehicle, which is just a, like a compact car. Another person who is playing the Transformed in a campaign that I'm not part of, their other form is sort of like this mass of like wires crossed with like an Old Testament angel. Wow. Like all the eyes and horror. So you just, it's just a matter of saying, Yes, and then putting the fiction first. Well, I really look forward to hearing about At Leviathan Files' game of Bean Saber, in which they will play a mechanical bass. <laughs> um, I'm really curious about which playbook they're going to choose. Actually, on that note, Richard Kreutz Landry, who is one of the designers behind Descent into Midnight, along with Taylor Lerbresh, who is uh, at Leviathan Files, Richard backed Beam Saber at the level to get one of a vehicle creation of his design into the game as an example vehicle. And he did in fact suggest a specific type of sea slug. <laughs> and there is now art for that that is in the game. And if anyone wants to check it out, they can find it in the uh, Beam Saber Kickstarters updates. Nice. That sounds really cool. I, I think there's a, a theme I'm starting to sense as a way to get to these different fun sorts of, you know, alternate versions of mechs uh, or vehicles so it like the alternate mode of transportation it seems to be is a common theme that would set you apart instead of legs you've got gills and and you know fins or tentacles or whatever uh unicycle tire <laughs> yeah i think that's probably where most people start off with is thinking about like well if i'm not going to be a humanoid what does my vehicle's mobility look like and then they sort of go from there one thing i love about friends at the table right now is it feels like they kind of went with that thought of like how can i make my mech unique and then they started applying it to their pilots as well which have gotten pretty wild in in that game in particular i don't think you have any direction in the game for like what a pilot can be or look like is, is that correct that is correct yeah it's just a matter of like you know describing your look there isn't really anything that is keeping people into like playing humans a couple of people have played cyborgs i know there's some players out there who are playing furries and obviously there are people who are playing robots it's just whatever fits the expectations of everyone at the table that are established yeah it's i think very dependent on what's going on with the story setup uh, if it's a defense of earth against aliens then Someone being an alien might be really interesting or totally faux pas for that particular campaign. It would really depend, I think, on the setup. Absolutely. Austin, do you have any more thoughts on indulgence and, and cutting loose before we start winding down? 
I guess just think about stress is a key mechanic in a lot of Forge in the Dark games. And one of the extremely important parts of game design is questioning every piece of game design that you're inheriting and whether or not it is necessary first. And then if it is necessary, if it's doing what you want it to do within the flow of what your game is meant to be. A traditional indulge vice didn't make sense for Beam Saber because it's not meant to necessarily focus upon the self-destruction of the pilots. So that's why Cut Loose exists the way it does. So just, you know, question whatever you inherit. Oh, that's a great point. Yeah, certain mechanics fit better than others for different genres, and that's what we're seeing now is that a lot of the variety in design comes from keeping certain elements and discarding others or just renaming them so that they fit a better context for that theme and genre. And we're starting to see lots of lots of nuance now, too, as people are kind of adopting similar ideas. I, I know I've seen a number of indulgence mechanics that involve two characters interacting. Uh, I know that in Mothlight, there are some pretty major differences in design philosophies than I see you using in Beam Saber. And I, I feel they're both valid, or at least I hope they're both valid. We'll see. Thank you, Austin, for talking to us about indulgences and for joining us today on the podcast to talk about Beam Saber. It's been a pleasure. Uh, if our listeners want to learn more about you or your games, where should they go? You can find my game design work at austin-ramsay.itch.io. If you just go to itch and search Beam Saber, you'll be able to find it pretty quick. I've got uh, more games than just Beam Saber stuff up there. A couple of small games, one Firebrands framework game. You can find me on Twitter at notanin, that's N-O-T-A-N-I-N-N. I am part of the You Don't Meet in an In podcast, which you can just find wherever you get your podcasts from. Currently, we're about halfway through a very long fantasy craft campaign, which is very different from Beam Saber, it being a D20-based fantasy game. Like I said, it's been going for six years now, so there's a large back catalog of games, everything from Poor Unfortunate Fools to Apocalypse World to Dread. So lots of different stuff to check out there. Ooh, tasty. Yeah, that game is its a nice, interesting use of the D20, and I'm glad to hear that you have such a long game with it. That's plenty of content. Mark, before we go, do you have anything you want to plug? I would plug the latest iterations of Runners in the Shadows. That is my cyberpunk based on Earth fantasy future hack of Blades in the Dark. People can find that at markcleveland.itch.io. And that game is featured alongside my other new game, Hope and Magic, about fantasy magical teens on an Earth that's semi-utopian. Awesome. So you can find me on Twitter at Mothlands. And if people want to check out my own design work on Forge and the Dark Games, currently Mothlight is in development. It's in the beta right now at moth-lands.itch.io. And there you can find all my games but Mothlight in particular is going to be seeing some cool development soon. So follow it and check out the new artwork and be prepared to be blown away by the cover coming soon. Ooh. Well, this has been a great episode of uh, Hacked in the Dark, this podcast featuring Forge in the Dark games and their designers. Again, I'm Mark. And I'm Justin. And 
remember when it comes to design, we all begin our journeys as hacks in the dark. Mm-hmm.